Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. On this show, we're going to talk with Dan Partland. His latest film, Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump, brings together a group of mental health professionals who've examined his behavior over the last several years and present a compelling case that Donald Trump is unfit to be president of the United States. Really, when I introduce you, I should say the award-winning director and producer. Sure. Dan Partland. Won awards, that's technically correct, yeah. I mean, does that signify success for you, winning the awards? Is that a sense of validation? I, I mean, obviously, it's nice to get recognition. I never particularly uh, think about awards that much. I mean, I just try to think about making it good and making it connect with an audience. And depending on what kind of fare you're doing, um, sometimes it award-worthy isn't even in the mix. I mean, sometimes <clears throat> that, that's not what's... Um, that's not what's possible in some projects, you know, have the have a halo veneer of of um, of something premium and special. And, and those can, you know, those are the better ones for uh, award consideration. But no, mostly I think um, I just feel like I'm I'm a craftsperson and I try to devote myself to uh, realizing the best version of whatever project I'm in the middle of. How do you think the new film Unfit the psychology of Donald Trump will go over and connect with people? Well, that's a, that's a really good question in, in terms of this discussion about craft. I think um, it's an interesting topic. It's an important topic. Um, but in a lot of ways, it wasn't a film. It's not a film I really made for me or, or necessarily even my friends. I mean, I made the film to try to reach a certain audience um, that was really kind of frustrating to me. There seemed like there was a portion of the audience of the electorate that was not really taking Trump that seriously. Some of them were independents or on the fence. Some of them were anti-Trump, but um, a little bit started to see him as a joke or as an eye-rolling matter and didn't really see the potential for danger to the democracy. And so we were really trying to speak to those voters and that portion of the audience and make a film that would give people the tools, even just around the dinner table, for talking about the bigger issue that's going on here, which is Trump's psychology himself and the psychology of the electorate that put him in power. What is happening to our country that makes a figure like this so appealing to so many people. That's really the important question we all have to wrestle with, um, because whether or not Trump wins the election, uh, those factors that put him in power are going to be with us for a while. Now, there's a lot of things you bring up in the film, and some I knew and some I didn't. And uh, I want to run through a couple of these for people that uh, that aren't aware of these of these topics. What is the Goldwater rule, and um, how is it applied to uh, this current situation with our president? Well, the Goldwater rule is a, a rule, uh, ethical guideline put out by the American Psychiatric Association um, in the wake of a controversy that happened during the 1964 election where Barry Goldwater was a Republican candidate for president. Um, 
It's an interesting history. I mean, there was a um, an article in a now defunct magazine called Fact Magazine that had sent uh, questionnaires to something like 11, 1200 uh, mental health professionals and asked them if Goldwater was fit to serve. And, and um, they got an alarming number of people, people responding that he was unstable and speculating at his really at his um, inner uh, at his inner thoughts, at his inner psychology um, and what made him tick. And this should be pointed out was unethical to do even in its day, even before this um, rule was passed. But they passed a rule that they don't want mental health professionals. Well, to finish the story, Fact Magazine was sued and lost, and and it put them out of business. I think also a lot of the methodology they used in in how they understood those questionnaires and who they sent them to and stuff like that was also very questionable But uh, from a journalistic standpoint. But what the APA did in the wake of that <clears throat> was they passed this ethical guideline that basically prohibits mental health professionals from commenting on public figures um, whom they have not seen in the clinical setting. And when you think about this rule, um, this really side, if you were to take it, um, not the spirit of it necessarily, but if you were to take it on face value, this would put the question of mental competency um, off the table completely for all uh, public figures. Because on the, if, you, if you've seen them clinically, then presumably your commentary on them is limited by, um, you know, by very strict confidentiality rules that would govern any mental health professional. And if you haven't seen them clinically, then you can't comment. And so this is actually what happened in the 2016 election is that a lot of mental health professionals were very, very concerned about what they were seeing in the behavior of Donald Trump, but they were prohibited from speaking and the APA did, um, um, offer, they, they did put out in the spring of 2016, as they saw this being a potential issue for the field, they did put out uh, renewed guidelines, making sure it was very clear that they did not think it was appropriate for any uh, mental health professionals to comment on any candidates. Now, the goal of not politicizing mental health was a noble one. That was a good one. And I think that part of the Goldwater rule is right. <clears throat> the other part of it about needing to have seen them clinically is really outdated because a tremendous amount of um, of analysis, di uh, diagnosis, or just commentary doesn't even have to be diagnosis, but um, the way we understand a lot of um, disorders a lot of is by looking at behavior. And that really isn't helped by a clinical interview. You don't have to put someone on, on the couch and probe their inner thoughts and their upbringing and stuff like that to be able to talk about behavior that is plain to see. And Donald Trump's behavior is plain to see. And it really was setting off a lot of alarms for a lot of mental health professionals because the, there is a kind of countervailing ethical guideline that the APA also has, <clears throat> which is called the Tarasov rule. And basically it, it enshrines the concept that a mental health professional has a moral duty, ethical and moral duty to the culture. When they see a potential for danger, 
they are supposed to speak up. Now, if they saw this in, in a clinical setting with the patient, that actually is more than moral and ethical. It's also a legal obligation. It's, it's the law across the country that um, a mental health professional has the duty to speak up if they see imminent danger in that setting. So conceptually, this is known as an unresolved ethical dilemma within the code of conduct for the APA. Um, but the mental health professionals who spoke out in this film were really doing so with a lot of clarity of purpose about what their role is. And they saw an overwhelming, um, an overwhel a compelling public interest in speaking up and warning the public about the dangers they see inherent in Donald Trump's presidency. And they've, uh, I don't know, can we call it a diagnosis, but they've uh, diagnosed him as a malignant narcissist. Yeah, I mean, I try to stay away from the word diagnosis because there's a lot of history there too. Diagnosis is really important to design a treatment plan. Um, but yes, uh, broadly speaking, um, I think that um, there, I, I, there are different points of view from different experts in the film. But one of the ideas that's advanced is this concept of malignant narcissism, which is really a constellation of four different um, disorders. It is, and, and it's important, I always want to say when we talk about this, that, you know, it having a, um, a psychological, you know, mental or emotional disorder is not in and of itself disqualifying for any particular job. Um, it might be <clears throat> one, one disorder may be problematic in one line of work, another disorder may be, that same disorder in another line of work may not be problematic. In the case of President Trump, this this idea of malignant narcissism um, really has four components. It, it's comprised of four different um, uh, disorders, one being antisocial personality disorder, which is really a um, profound lack of empathy. Um, narcissism, narcissistic personality disorder, which is, you know, not just simple narcissism, like any of us might have a friend who has a personality trait, but when it really exists to a pathological extent. Um, paranoia, um, which is where you really, um, I mean, I think it manifests itself with President Trump in a lot of projection and a lot of, I mean, he was in the news just yesterday talking about um, guys on a plane who were controlling everything and out to get him. Um, I think that's a, a persistent uh, theme with him. And sadism, which is really taking uh, taking some degree of, of pleasure in in the harm or demise of other people, and um, I think we saw that on dis we we see that on display in terms of how he um, handles uh, his opposition. Really, um, it's it's more than just looking to um, defeat them in the political arena. It's really um, looking to vanquish them and and do them harm as you know, retribution. This morning I saw that clip. It was uh, he was being interviewed by Laura Ingram on Fox News, and I was surprised because she was trying to drill down because he would say, "Well, people are saying, and some people say," and and she was like, "Well, who? Who are these people that are saying this?" Well, I mean, what, I think what was fascinating about that is I actually read her to be throwing him a lifeline to self-correct that she understood that it would sound. Um, paranoid it would be it would sound like a conspiracy theory and she was giving him a chance to offer more information that would give it credibility but um yeah i think what he offered was you know bizarre and incoherent 
I remember watching the Game of Thrones. Were you a? Did you get hooked on that show, Game of Thrones? Hooked would be an understatement. Right. So, do you remember the episode where um, they bring in? He's kind of like this res- uh, religious zealot. Yes, the High and, Sparrow. Yeah, and so they bring him in, and all of a sudden he seems kind of innocuous, but he starts to change things, and eventually mm-hmm. the the queen is arrested or her 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 son is arrested and there's a fear and it it goes to they then take over power of this city and they start calling the shots and it becomes very repressive and in the film you show this uh in italy where mussolini became came into power how um and then he became this dictator of that country and it's it's almost that same same story I was watching the the news footage that you had of Mussolini and he oh all the shots that I see him in he has this scowl on his face he looks angry and his hands are you know he's got fists on his hips and that's the way he's portrayed and in some ways I mean yeah you see Trump smiling but for the most part he has a scowl on his face mm. and and is that just to help him create that persona analogies to Mussolini are, are myriad. The reason we included it in the film, I mean, we hadn't really set out in that direction, but it was a theme that kept coming up with um, experts and historians um, about how similar this time is. And digging into it, um, that was really alarming to see um, how similar the pattern is of what's happening in, in the United States right now as what was happening in interwar Europe. Um, uh, between you know between World War One and World War Two, the um, you know I I've seen that footage of Mussolini a million times over the years. It's clipped in this or that documentary, or you see it in a newsreel for a history class or something like that. And Mussolini, it it just always seemed laughable to me that how how could anyone take him seriously? This this very hammy performance of a uh, of a powerful guy, and um, and yet. I I do think that there are similarities to Trump there, in that when I, when I see him, you know, I mean, this is what happened in the run up to 2016. I think we saw that there were really two distinct visions of Trump. People are seeing two different guys. There are people who see him and they just see a rich, powerful, successful man. He's projecting um, this image of confidence and um, clarity and leadership and then there's people like me who like he looks like exactly that he's projecting confidence and power um, but he looks like a mess to me I mean he looks like a bundle of nerves who would want to be Donald Trump I mean it seems like sure everyone would like to have his power his privilege or or something like that but um, God, he seems like a like a, a mess of a person in terms of his own lack of uh, confidence, self-esteem, lack of self-worth, and that he's just desperate to prove it every moment. And that's why his ego is so very fragile, that he cannot tolerate um, any criticism or critique whatsoever. He, he has to correct it. It cannot stand. Um, and that's a, to a pathological extent, I'm afraid. It seems as if the, um, really with this whole, um, 
the whole notion of uh, narcissism, it seems like this is something that's really gained a lot of uh, attention over the last 10 years with this bro culture of uh, Silicon Valley, with your Travis Calvinex. And uh, I mean, it, it seems to be part of the business world where it's this kind of kill or be killed mentality. Um, do you think that's that's why people are more accepting of a person like Donald Trump? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's a great point. And I, um, it's a point that we really hoped that we could make in the film, but just, you know, was, we were going in too many directions. It's quite an expansive thing to go from Trump psychology to the psychology of the electorate to the, the nature of authoritarianism and why authoritarianism is so successful. And then also come out and um, talk about just how much narcissism is on the rise and proliferating in the culture. I think that, you know, in some senses with Trump, you have to look at it as the result of a lot of different trends in the culture, um, political and otherwise. I think on the social front, it's it's an extension of uh, it's an extension of who we think we are. I think we got ourselves with Trump too much valuing of uh, wealth and privilege and celebrity and other things that that shouldn't really matter that much things that aren't really about merit or your contribution to society and what we see though is that you know narcissism can be an effective package it really can i mean if you're part of it is about being so concerned with yourself that you're not concerned with others um yeah of course that there's something very empowering and i think we do look up to way too many people who have this um personality um, trait, um, either just that they're very narcissistic or that it's even to the next level, which where we would call it a, dis a pathology disorder. So yes, I absolutely think that's happening. I think you're right to, to talk about it in terms of the, you know, what you're saying is bro culture or uh, the Silicon Valley, um, you know, the, the famous Silicon Valley CEOs known for being um, a little bit you know, reckless, but the headstrongness. I mean, I think Steve Jobs, unfortunately, I mean, he, he contributed so many uh, wonderful things, but um, I think it also kind of, um, it, the, the story of Steve Jobs, I think made it a little bit more okay to, um, to be that kind of a headstrong, narcissistic person and to just indulge um, your every whim and that you know that sometimes it's what it takes to make great things it could be true um but it also is um i think it's doing great damage to the culture it's this notion of they get the job done and yeah. i was watching the um the republican delegation recently what is that uh, and this whole notion was okay sure he's brash sure he says horrible things, but he gets the job done. And Herschel Walker's up there talking about, yeah, when I was running through the line, they didn't appreciate me running over them, but we won. Yeah. So yeah. it's, 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 it's finding a way to justify the behavior. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's 
That's really interesting. I mean, I appreciate the rhetorical flourish that tries to equate, you know, the running back's responsibility to crush everybody in front of him with the politician's <laughs> responsibility to try to build consensus, but they're not the same, you know? Um, and I think that Trump has certainly convinced himself that, um, you know, winning at all costs is still winning. I think this comes down to just a question of, of who we want to be. I think that, of course, you can accomplish a lot more if you don't care the damage that you do on the way to that goal. Um, and obviously, that's what's happening. And, and, you know, I think a lot of voters did do, did take that as a motive. Uh, a motivation, which is, well, you know, whether you like him or not, he's effective and that's what we need. The problem is it's a lie. Um, and that's really the story of populist leaders throughout history with very few exception is that their great skill is in, uh, fomenting the, the culture is in, in fomenting supporters, um, not really in being effective in governance. And Trump has been completely incompetent in governance, and it's shown up in every different way. What he's been effective at is wielding his power and consolidating power, and he has been very effective at that. Um, he's been effective at that to the degree that he's pretty much destroyed the you know, conservative movement and the Republican Party. You make me think of a, uh, a cartoon that I saw in Playboy magazine by Game Wilson, and uh, it's a picture of a soldier, and he's standing on a barren, it's just the whole landscape is barren. You can tell that there's, there's been a bomb, and it's destroyed everything. And the caption says, I think we won. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, Trump's incompetence is on, is on display, um, but he is so very effective at um, confusing the board and dominating the the media coverage and, you know, really confusing people into believing uh, things that are just quite obviously contrary to reality. How did you find the organization The Duty to Warn? And it's The Duty to Warn Coalition. And tell me about them and, and what they're doing. Well, we uh, Duty to Warn is an organization that was founded by Dr. John Gardner. Um, he is a uh, prominent psychologist who, who has written extensively uh, on Trump, on other politicians before Trump, um, but uh, on Trump from a psychological perspective. And um, I just really found his framework really, really valuable. And so we started... Uh, we spoke to him, we spoke to many mental health professionals until we found um, a few that we thought would, would were really making the most compelling arguments. And so we, we worked with him. That organization, um, Duty to Warn, really started out with a, I, I think their original goal was to um, encourage a, a 25th Amendment challenge on Trump, which isn't something that I've ever thought would be effective. I mean, in people, as you dig into mental health, I mean, that, that, that the 25th amendment, which is, has its own interesting history. It really is about incapacity and Trump may be incompetent on, on a whole lot of levels, but it, 
it's really only going to be used when someone is like incapacitated, meaning some way not fully conscious, honestly, in, in the hospital or you know, some, some terrible tragedy befallen them. But um, what it says, the 25th Amendment, is that the cabinet, if the cabinet, the vice president plus a majority of the cabinet, um, believe that the president is unable to carry out his duties, um, they can vote to remove him. But it doesn't quite work that way. What they really are voting for, I believe, is is that a, a body in the Congress, um, they would refer it to a body in the Congress, and the body in the Congress would um, review it and vote it out. And um, it's one of the many kind of confounding things about constitutional law that we got as far as passing the amendment, but I don't think the mechanics of how that body would actually work ever fully got sorted out. When you were doing your research, was there anything you found that shocked you or surprised you, startled you, made you laugh? <laughs> Plenty, but I think the thing that, um, the, the, the most important thing that um, we really kept running into is really to get your head around um, the concept of how authoritarianism thrives. And because I, I honestly, I feel like the way this has been taught to people of my generation and, and generations after is that um, the authoritarians of the 1920s and 30s and the whole kind of international crisis and moral crisis of World War II, that that was just from a time when we were backward, you know, that we're past that. Humanity is past that. And, um, and that just is not the case. I mean, it, the, the appearance of some of these movements is going to be different in different eras. Um, people always bristle when um, experts in the film compare Trump to Hitler and Mussolini because, you know, those guys are in the, the pantheon of the real, you know, authoritarian monsters in history. Um, but, you know, nobody is contending that Trump is like Hitler in terms of, you know, the what he's, you know, the, the horrors that he's accomplished. I mean, Hitler is responsible, arguably, for the death of 12 million people. It was, you know, truly, truly unbelievable stuff. Um, but it's, but I, I do think the compelling case is made that the analogy is fair because it's really not about how effective he is, but about what he's capable of in the modern era. Yeah. I, I don't think that, um, I don't think that Donald Trump is looking to slaughter millions of people. It's not that, um, but he is, he, he doesn't have a problem with, demonizing a whole culture and inciting violence if that benefits his political fortunes. And um, we see this again and again. Uh, he's doing it right now, and it's tearing the culture apart. And um, it's, it's truly dangerous. I think um, he knows that the limits on him today are different than, um, than they were in World War II, but... Um, but also, a lot of what we know about what happened in World War II, we didn't learn until the war was over. And that brings us to this other question that I think is going to come up um, soon when the after this election is over, which is, 
is even if Trump is um, defeated, you know, we have this real crisis of legitimacy. Like he's successfully confusing people about uh, raising he's raising questions prospectively about whether the results of the election would be valid, and and that um, uncertainty is going to be with us. I think because it's it's getting you know it's getting seeded in the culture and it's growing roots. I think that uncertainty is going to be with us, regardless of who wins. And I think it's going to be really hard to explain to the other side why it, it is legitimate. And um, and that's really difficult, you know. I think um, how how do you pull back the veil when? Um, so much news has been discounted as fake news when there's been so much propaganda from you know one side or another. Uh, I think it's going to be very, very tough. And I think that that fact alone is so destabilizing that it redounds to the benefit of the authoritarian. And it's part of the scheme that if we don't know what to believe, if we can't find our information and get answers really um, clearly, um, which I think is impossible right now. The, the sources are too myriad and too, you know, there's no re restraints on publishing. Everybody's their own publisher in the modern era of the internet and social media. Um, so it's really hard to move through the, the cloud of, of good and bad information and, and discern what is right. And when those conditions arise, um, it does become very attractive to the human psychology. I mean, all, all people to tune it out and listen to the clarity of the authoritarian. It's, it gives us comfort to just hear that simple thing, I alone can fix it. Well, let's get him. He can fix it. He is confident enough to stand up on the stage in front of millions of people and make that declaration. I connect with him culturally on values, so let's just give him the ball and let him do whatever he's going to do and um, support him through it because we're, you know, because there's a lot of fears and anxieties around and maybe he's got the answer. I think about Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, where you have a party that causes the problem and then they say, we'll be the one that can fix it. We're the only one that can fix it. Right. And right now you see the demonstrations in, you know, different states and Part of the thing is Trump is saying, if I don't get reelected, this there's just going to be anarchy. And the difference is, it's he's the one in power right now, when it's yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It 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 really makes no sense. But again, he's very good. He's a genius at gaslighting. You know, gaslighting is a term we talk about in the film, but it's basically. Um, you can you can just confuse the board just by straight face saying untrue things, and if you have no compunction about saying untrue things, um, you can you can convince a lot of people that those are true just by repetition and by the certainty of how you you perform it. And I think Trump performs a lot of those things with certainty because he really believes a lot of those things. They that doesn't mean they're true, but it. it it is going to convince a lot of people to um, listen to him. I mean, you know, people, I think the other lesson from the film is that people like Trump, people with an authoritarian strain um, and willing to, um, you know, do, do whatever is necessary to keep themselves in power, those people 
have always been around. They've always been on, on the edges of American politics and then the, the politics of every country. But the, the real important question for us is to get our heads around why in 2016 and maybe in 2020, does it seem like the ground is fertile for a person like that? In other eras, they, those people have found no toehold in American politics. But I think there are a lot of important um, things that are destabilizing the culture and that it really is the same thing. It, it is a fair analogy to Europe um, in the interwar period. Um, you know, we've got tremendous, there's tremendous anxiety about uh, the global, you know, about um, climate change, global, global crisis of climate change. Um, a lot of demographic anxieties as the world becomes more and more interconnected, suddenly unleashing, um, uh, you know, a, a bonanza of free speech, including all the perils of really unchecked free speech now that we have social media and people propagating um, misinformation around the globe. All these things are really coming together to create a really unstable moment in the United States and around the world. And that's why we're seeing the rise of authoritarians around the world. It's not, this is not a small factor. This is a significant portion of the globe right now is making a hard move towards authoritarian leaders and authoritarian governments. And it's up to the lovers of democracy to make the case for democracy. And, you know, we say that about Trump and people think that you're being, uh, that you're being an alarmist, but it's, it's not a, it's not a small thing. You know, there's, there are very good NGOs who, uh, measure freedoms around the world and measure, you know, what different countries are trending in the way of autocracy versus, versus individual freedoms. And you would like to think that on a score, they score every country on the, on the planet between zero and 100, 100 being fully free, and they have all kinds of different metrics that go into that. But you, we would like to think that the United States is the freest place on the planet. It's not so. It's been in decline. There are a lot of countries in Europe that do get a score of 100 um, out of 100, meaning the press is fully free, the, the, um, they have an independent judiciary not subject to political influence. They... You know, there are no political prosecutions. Um, you know, the, the media is fair and, and is checked and the public has confidence in it. The United States is like an 84. It's like one of the lowest scores of the Western democracies. And it's trending down and has been trending down for a bunch of years. And when the data comes out in 2020, I, I, I mean, I hope that they that it's showing stable, but by some metrics, it's continuing to erode, even in the United States. Your film brings up this notion that the one thing that could save us is the Constitution, and that the framers, they they feared that this might happen. Mm. Well, you know, the, I think the thing to realize that one of the things that comes is really made clear by the manner in which Trump has conducted himself in office is that it isn't really the laws themselves that are effective at containing at creating you know lawful behavior it's you know people people aren't yes some people are not stealing a bicycle because they're afraid they'll get caught but really most people are not stealing a bicycle because 
they buy into the social contract that we shouldn't do that. And the law in some ways just reflects that social contract. And people understand that those laws were come, you know, we came by those laws through a fair democratic process. And even though some of the laws are bad and sometimes the laws have to be revised and you can protest against laws that you, that you think are unjust, but that by and large, we follow laws because we want to. And so it's not really the, the, the letter of the law that makes them powerful, it's our reverence towards them. And Trump is so completely without reverence towards the law that the, you, there's no clearer example than the, the flagrant flouting of the Hatch Act that went on in the Republican National uh, Convention. The use of public property, yeah, there's all kinds of loopholes. I'm sure he's got an argument for for how he's gonna skin it, um, how he's gonna say that they didn't violate the Hatch Act. But it's pretty explicit that the point of it is that you can't really use federal property or federal employees or federal resources for political events. And the reason is not just because it's gonna cost, the, the taxpayers shouldn't be paying for your political event, which of course they would be in some way if you're doing a giant event like that at the White House, but also because it isn't fair for one party to have the, the trappings and the legitimacy of the White House behind them as they're making speech. They're not, you know, their their political um, aspirations are, they, they don't they don't own those properties. Those are everybody's, and so when they make a, a case for themselves, they need to do it in their own in their own turf. So this is not a small this is not a small infraction. He it's 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 a huge infraction of the spirit of that anti-corruption rule and. When you're the president of the United States, it's not just your job to um, to uh, abide by the laws. It's also your job to enforce the laws. And so what we see politically is that people didn't, you know, people gave some tough discussion of why we were allowing this Hatch Act thing to happen. But one of the ways authoritarians get power is by flagrantly flouting laws. And if they do it a few times, the more they do it and the more they get away with it, over time, the less we complain about it. Because right now, I think nobody really made a big fuss over the Hatch Act because they kind of know that if, if Trump is controlling the Justice Department, there isn't going to be a way to hold him to account. So it's fruitless. And so that law, uh, the power of that law is eroded and our reverence, all of our reverence for it is eroded. And now there's no question. I mean, I'm sure that people are using all the government properties for political events right now because that that law just doesn't have any strength right now. You have uh, George Conway in your film. And uh, there's a very poignant moment where he's talking and he, he almost, well, he starts, he gets choked up or he almost starts crying about mm. what has happened because he voted for Trump in yeah. the first election. Yeah, I mean, George, we, um, I think George's interview is really central to the film because he's one of several um, Republicans. We, we only interviewed uh, people with sterling Republican and conservative credentials, really. I mean, the, the scholars, we didn't ask them political questions. Um, they spoke about history or about mental health and you know, psychology. Um, but the, uh, the partisans who were interviewed for the film were all 
um, Republicans or, or conservatives on some level and or former Republicans. And um, because it's not really a partisan case, we're not really it, it is an anti-Trump film, but it's not a partisan film. There's no, you know, left or right wing politics that the film speaks to. Um, but I think the the interviews with George and also with Anthony Scaramucci, I think, are really, really valuable because both of those interviews, uh, both of those men really talk about their conversion story, about how they started out um, being Trump supporters and how uh, they lost uh, faith in him along the way. And I think that that it's really important because I think a lot of people who are Trump supporters are have had to defend themselves so much. They, you know, everybody has family who they just don't understand it. And the Trump supporters have had to defend themselves and throw down so many times. I think it's a really difficult thing after you've been on the record supporting a guy as controversial as Donald Trump to, to back down and, and change your position. And I think it's really brave um, for the people who do that. And, and we were really grateful that um, George Conway and Scaramucci and others were willing to share that conversion experience on camera for us. Is this film for the undecided voter? It is for undecided voters, if any of them are still left. And it's also for um, voters who are already comfortable with their anti-Trump position, but who are maybe uh, tired or frustrated and becoming disconnected and apathetic because um, politics is so discouraging. So in some ways, I think it's a film to try to restate the importance of, of all of these things. But I also think it's, it's a film that's not really about changing minds, but it's about changing the discussion. I think the discussion of what Trump has accomplished or not accomplished, I mean, all of that stuff is it, it, your mind, it just, you glaze over because there's a, you know, there's talking points from, from uh, the right that, you know, can paint it as a very rosy picture, carefully selected metrics that, you know, are maybe a little bit intellectually dishonest, but also may be factually, you know, there may be some factual truth to them. Um, and then the counter argument um, from the left, which I think is, you know, overwhelming, but um, also, you know, you have the problem of false equivalency, you put those two next to each other, and it can be hard to discern, um, which is the better argument. What there aren't a lot of counter arguments to are the arguments in this film, because it really is just speaking to what is plain for everybody to see about who Donald Trump is and about what his, his behavior is and about how dangerous that is. And if you can push back on that, please do. But I think, um, I think that that part, that the language for talking about actually what is really dangerous about Trump is really missing from a lot of the political debate and the effort uh, of the film was to make sure that people had the language and the ideas and the framework for talking about that part of this choice in, uh, in November. When I was younger, I used to think, uh, really, what does the president do? <laughs> really, what do they do? And I had that attitude. It's just like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they do. But as I've gotten older and I've seen what they can do with this, with this presidency, and your film addresses this very serious issue about he has the codes. 
Yeah. He, he has the football. And yeah. and how it's not just it's not just uh, a wake up call. It's like he can destroy an entire country. <laughs> right. And is this really the person who you want to entrust with that responsibility? Dan Partland, thank you so much. Really appreciate you um, spending this time with us to talk about the film and filmmaking and um, your craft. And just a reminder, you can watch uh, Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. It's currently streaming uh, at a uh, computer screen near you. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. It was fun to be on. If you'd like to find out more about the film, visit unfitfilm.com. Until next time, this is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. Hehehe. <laughs>